work our way through the thread series leading up to this Easter next week. We move our discussion from the thread of last week of the early church and that to the modern church. You see, this is the era we are living in today. Now, last week, Hunter described the faith and the passion of those who lived at the time of the early church, those in the book of Acts. And he left us with a challenge. Who is your number one? Who is the one person that you are pouring into? Who is the one that you're sharing Jesus with? And today, as we move forward in our series and focus on the church age during our time, which is the modern church, we need to examine ourselves. If anyone has studied church history uh, from the time of the apostles and the early church going forward, we see that church history has been wrought with turmoil and bloodshed but many periods of revival throughout. And all during this time, the church has held God's Word, Scripture, in their hand. All 66 books written somewhere between 1500 B.C. and 95 A.D. And in our focus today, we're going to be looking at the last book of the Bible, which we know as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, most theologians believe that this book was written by the Apostle John in or around 90 to 95 A.D., and that he had been exiled on the island of Patmos because of his conviction and preaching about Jesus. And Patmos was an island that was off of what we now know as modern-day Turkey, which is where the letters that we're going to be talking about today were. And the first chapter of Revelation tells us that Jesus himself gave the instruction to John to write down the things he had seen. Those things that are and those things which are to take place. And send these writings to seven churches located in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. Now, chapters 2 and 3 contain specific letters and instructions to each individual church. And six of those churches are giving dire warning with consequences attached. Only one church, the church in Philadelphia, is given what we would consider praise. But today, we're going to focus on that last church. And the last church is the church of Laodicea. And warning was given to them as well. And this is the church that I believe thinks most represents our modern time, our modern age that we are currently living in. So let's go to chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, and let's read together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." You see, if we, you were a first century person living in the city of Laodicea, you would feel blessed. The city had a booming economy. Goods came from all over the region, and particularly textiles of a great variety and color, which made the marketplaces there rich and lavish. It was a prominent banking center for its day, and it was a city also known for medicine, particularly a medicine for the eye. A type of salve was made that people could come with eye diseases and it would cure, and people came from all over the region to Laodicea. It had a booming economy with great wealth, and I think we would compare it to our economy today of the world or even of the United States. Many people traveled this road of Laodicea. It was built in the Lycus River Valley. It was at a crossroads of trade routes, but it had a problem with where it was built. It had no running water. And we have a map here, and as you can see, there is a river in the valley called the Lycus River, but the problem with the Lycus River was that it was unfit to drink. And so, this being part of the Roman Empire, Rome piped water from two places into Laodicea, from Colossae and from Heropolis, which were about six to ten miles away. You can see ancient aqueducts and uh, terracotta piping now that uh, archaeologists have found getting the water to Laodicea. And the Colossae, Colossae water was up in the mountains. It was cold, ice cold, wonderful water. And you get to Heropolis and it was wonderful hot water. And both of those waters were piped down to Laodicea, but the problem was Laodicea was in Asia Minor and it was very hot and arid. And so as you can imagine, by the time the water reached its destination point, the cold water was lukewarm and the hot water was now lukewarm. And Jesus uses this actuality, what's going on in this region when he sends this letter to the church and he describes the people of the Laodicean church as lukewarm, 
as average, as ordinary. Now, in my studying and preparation for this today, I have to make a uh, confession. I've done more research and questioning and soul-searching than I've probably ever done for a message. The Holy Spirit has stirred me this week. And it's because when I read this text, it scares me. And it should frighten all of us. Because I had to this week look within myself and ask the question that I didn't want to ask, are you lukewarm? I mean, nobody wants to be called lukewarm, do they? Not as a Christian. But I want us to sit here and try to put a definition to this term. Now, you can Google anything about the Laodicean church and you can see theologians all over the board of what they view a lukewarm Christian and what the meaning of this passage is. And several theologians even choose to believe that the people Jesus is talking about here, that this is not even really a church at all. It's non-believers. But I don't see that. If Jesus is sending a message to a church, his body, there has to be someone that's a true believer in here, you would think. I don't buy that there's no Christians here. But what we do see is a church here in Laodicea full of Christians who claim to know Jesus or claim to be Christian, yet Jesus is looking at them and says, you're lukewarm. Lukewarm Christians are people who sit in churches and believe the message of the gospel, but they're really not sold out to Jesus nor meaningfully engaged in his mission. See, Jesus uses this imagery in Laodicea to give a visual. And in verse 16, we read, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that's a strange thing to tell a church with believers, isn't it? Because of their lukewarmness, Jesus himself is going to spit you out. If you actually look up this Greek word for spit, it's a mayo, and it means to vomit or throw up. You know, I think back to coffee. I love coffee, especially in the morning. You get that hot cup, and it's wonderful, but you set it down, you go do some chores and errands, and 30 minutes later, you come back, you take a sip. What is it? It's lukewarm. It makes me want to gag. I'm not a cold coffee lover either. But I mean, Jesus says this is the kind of Christian that just doesn't make him, our English says, spit out. It makes him want to vomit. And then he goes on to tell them the reason for their lukewarmness. Let's look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Pitiable here translates to loathing and disgusting. Does that sound like a society we see today? You know, we live in DeSoto County, Mississippi, which is the second highest per capita income of this state. 
We're wealthy compared to the world's standards. We love our cars, our homes, our kids, our sports, our pets. And in comparison to the other parts of the world, they probably look at us and just shake their head. I dare say most people listening or in here today cannot go out and meet their basic needs. But it's never enough. And Jesus makes this type of comparison to the Laodiceans when he calls them wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is saying, you think you're okay? Well, you're not. Your stuff and the way you are living is, is not, won't do anything for you. And in fact, it makes me sick. But here's the deal. Jesus does not warn ever without a solution. He has the answer for their lukewarmness. Let's look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I took this one verse right here and I literally translated everything from the Greek and it just exploded with meaning. And I want you to listen to this. Jesus says, if I love you, I scrutinize you, I examine you and bring to light those things in your life that need to be brought out. You need to see these things in your life and then I provide instruction and give guidance. So be intensely serious about this and change your ways. Let's look at these verbs here. Jesus is doing this. He will scrutinize. He will examine. He will bring to light. He will provide instruction and he will give guidance. He does that for us. What is our thing that we need to do? We need to be intensely serious about this and we need to change our ways. When we get past this, the next verse, it both breaks my heart and gives me so much hope at the same time. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What does this verse say to us? This is a relationship, people. We don't dine with anyone we don't really know, do we? But that's the kind of relationship Jesus wants with us. But it tells me we think we can know Jesus and even claim Him. But if I am lukewarm, I have no relationship with Him. And that's what He desires most from you and from me. When he says he's going to stand and knock, it's not this timid knock, it means to pound. He's pounding on the door for each and every one of us, asking us to open up and let him in. What kind of relationship do you have with Jesus? Is it superficial? Is it in name only? Some of you here or listening may not have a relationship with Jesus at all. Get well, we have to go here. 
We have to, each one of us, ask ourselves this question. Am I lukewarm? And if I am lukewarm, how does that affect others around me? How does that affect our families? How does that affect our marriages? Parents, are you lukewarm? How does that affect you and your relationship to your kids? What does it show your children? Because here, I can guarantee you this statement here. Lukewarm parents produce ice-cold children. It's fact. Statistics bear this out in our country. If Jesus is not your priority and your kids do not see the result of a relationship, a close relationship, odds are they are going to grow up ice-cold. We get statistics, we've said this over and over and over. For church kids in the United States, the moment they leave these doors, they go to college, 50% of them stop living for Christ or they walk away from their faith altogether. That's one half. It's not important for mom and dad. Why should it be important for me? Now this past year has been hard on many people. COVID has wreaked havoc. I don't know anyone that I'm related to or close to that hasn't experienced loss. And people have rightly so been fearful of a disease that we didn't know what it was gonna do or what it existed. But I say this, as things begin to open up People wear masks. We saw a, I saw a trend that really disturbs me because many people have gotten comfortable not gathering together as a body of believers. But their Facebook and their Instagram pages show that they aren't afraid to go out and do what's important to them. It bothers me, it grieves me to see our kids and our students a fraction of what it was pre-COVID. I know they're in school all week and they wear masks all weeks, but come on people. The trips and the vacations haven't stopped. The sports hasn't stopped and the activities haven't stopped. And parents, I'm sorry, but this one's on you. Lukewarm parents make ice-cold kids, and it's time to make a change. See, lukewarm people make lukewarm churches, and here's one for you, Get well, lukewarm churches do not make disciples. They cannot. How in the world can I go out and make a disciple if I don't even have a relationship with Jesus? It's impossible. You cannot fulfill the mission that God called us to if you're lukewarm. I just talked about three areas, family, discipleship, and mission, which we claim are our core values for this church. What are we gonna do about this? Here's even a question I have for you. Have you ever made a disciple? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone or do you even have a desire to do it? 
Because this is one of the commandments Jesus gives us and says, if you're mine, you need to do this. He has a heart for the lost. Why don't we? What does this say about us? You know, in 11 years on staff here, I can count on this one hand the number of adults, not kids, adults that have come to me and said, I really don't know how to share Jesus with someone. Can we talk about that? In 11 years. See, folks, Jesus gives us warnings for a reason. And the reason is this. He's returning soon. He promises this. And the moment that He returns, our status with Him matters. If we're like the Laodicean church, we're in trouble. Revelation is the last book of the Bible for a reason. It is about His second coming and the end. Now many scholars and theologians view Revelation differently. That's okay. Whether you believe in a true rapture or you believe that we're living in the millennial kingdom now, the bottom line is what happens at the end and is that Jesus comes back. And those on earth at that point in time better be ready. You see, the relationship Jesus is calling us to is something that is really so intimate. Often, He compares what? The church, His body of believers as the bride, and He as the bridegroom. And that's a special relationship. I don't believe this is by accident that in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 25, we see Jesus giving three parables right after Matthew 24, which is his end time warning. We're going to briefly look at these three parables, which are in Matthew 25. We have the parable of the ten virgins the parable of the talents, and the final judgment. And I encourage you later to read all of three of these. But I do want to highlight the first one for sure. And we're going to read that one together. Let's look. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And hear this, the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Jesus gives this imagery, and in a, for an ancient Hebrew reader, they would totally understand this. I want to briefly explain for a first century Hebrew person on a marriage. The bridegroom, future bridegroom, would go to a father of a daughter and say, I want to marry your daughter, and a deal would be struck. And there would be a betrothal. The bridegroom would go back to his father's house. They lived as families. He would add on to the house. They would create a hoopah, which was a marriage chamber. And the bride is sitting there constantly waiting and anticipating for the bridegroom to come get her for marriage. In Jewish custom, it was the actual father who told the son when it was time to go get the bride. Usually it occurred at night. They would walk down the streets blowing shofars with, with great joy and excitement. The groom would gather his bride. He would take her back. There was a consummation. Then there was a wedding feast for seven days. Do you hear this imagery? Jesus uses the culture of that time to tell this story. He says, think about this, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you there, I will come again also. He's giving us the image of him coming back for us. He says, we are his bride. He is the bridegroom and he is coming back and we should be ready. We shouldn't be like the five virgins who foolishly wasted their time, did nothing, and were not prepared when the bridegroom came. Briefly, when you go into the next parable, which is the parable of the talents, uh, one guy was given five talents, the other two, and one one. The first two people doubled theirs, their talents. The third one took his talent and buried it in the ground. But when it came time to settle up, the first two were praised by the master. And then the second one comes and, I mean, the last one comes and Jesus says, go away. I don't know you. You wicked servant. You see, to be called wicked is a harsh word, isn't it, for someone who played it safe. Because so I've read that passage over and over, and I used to think in my mind, well, what did he do? He didn't lose it. He gave every penny back, but see, he was lukewarm. Finally, we get to the parable at the end, and it's frightening. It's the parable of judgment. We have sheep and goats separated. Sheep on, the, I mean, the goats on the left, sheep on the right. We get to verse 35. Jesus is looking at the sheep. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This group doesn't even know what they've done. And they asked Jesus, they said, Lord, what did we do for you? And Jesus says to this bunch, what you did to the least of these, you did it for me. Welcome. 
When we skip down to verse 42, where he's looking at the goats. You know, our youth today love to tell somebody they're the goat. That means greatest of all time. It's an acronym. But you don't want to be a goat for God. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Here come the excuses. And he, then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, the goats were surprised. They were shocked to be rejected by Jesus, who they thought they were faithfully serving. But when it came to pouring themselves out for the people, for the least of these, for the the deprived, those that were poor and naked and in prison, they weren't really engaged at all. We have to ask ourselves, have we offered our lives Have we offered our talents, no matter your age, as an investment to the kingdom? If you looked at your giving and at your service, would it say that you're all in on mission with God? Would your calendar back up your words when you declare Jesus is Lord? Now, please, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. I want us to understand this. This is not works-based righteousness. We cannot work ourselves into salvation. It is a free gift that Jesus gives us. We just have to put our faith in Him. But guys, when you have salvation from the Creator of the earth, surely that's going to move you to something. My salvation is from Jesus and it is through Jesus and it should move me to action. There should be fruit. And if our lives do not reflect fruit, we have to get down on our knees. We have to change our direction, repent, and be all in for Jesus. Church, we have our warning. But the best thing we have, I want you to hear all of this, is hope. And that's what this week we are going to be celebrating is all about, is about hope. Today is traditional Palm Sunday. Jesus himself rode on a donkey into Jerusalem knowing what the week was going to hold for him because he was God and he already knew it. 
being God himself, he had a plan that he was going to carry out. And that plan, believe it or not, involved you and me. Yes, even 2,000 years ago, that plan had you and me in mind. We rush through Holy Week every year. We treat Easter like any other holiday. Families get together, kids are out of school. We have Easter egg hunts, good times, and great food, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to stop and take time to reflect and truly think what this week was about. And this week was about our sin and getting rid of it. This week was an actuality. It was ugly, it was bloody, and it was violent. And God did this for you and for me. He did it so we can have that intimate bridegroom bride, that eat dinner type relationship. Do you hear this? And he desires it for each person that's here or each person that's listening. If you don't know Jesus, this week is for you. If you've never committed to be a full and faithful follower of Jesus Christ, this week is for you. Please hear this. Everyone who ever lived is going to be in the end in one of those two groups that's in that parable in Matthew 25. You're either going to be a sheep or a goat. You will spend eternity in, with Jesus in a new heaven and, heaven, heaven and earth, or you will spend an eternity in punishment in the lake of fire. That's a fact. The Bible says it. It's truth. But everyone listening today doesn't have to experience that horrible ending. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we have a world telling you differently. If you don't know Jesus, this week is for you. So church, body of believers, let's take this week. Let's look within. Let's examine ourselves as hard as it is. Let's examine our hearts. Let's examine our lives. And you know what Jesus promised us in that verse? He's going to expose it. He'll do it. And then all you've got to do once it's exposed is you have to repent. You have to turn away and get right with Him. This week is for you. This week is for me. This week is for us. My prayer is that the, if you've heard this, is it moves you to some kind of action. Faith in Jesus, repentance in Him, and fire for Him. And it's too important, Gitwell. There's too much at stake here. One day, and it could be soon, we don't know when, Jesus is coming back. And at the moment that He comes back, it's over. It's done. Revelation is scary, but only for the goats. But the revelation of Jesus is pure joy, hope, and victory in Him, if we have Him. And the ending with Jesus is glorious forever. 
C.S. Lewis said it best. He says, when the author walks on the stage of a play, the play's over. And when Jesus walks on our stage again, it's over. Where are you going to be? I have an open door policy for discussion. And so does our staff. I challenge you, if you're struggling, call me, text me, email me, make an appointment. If you need to learn how to share Jesus with someone, let's talk. Let's be unified in this as a body of believers. And we as a staff are here for this purpose. We want to hear your stories. We want to hear stories of change, of transformation. And we want to share that. Let's repent. Let's get on fire for Jesus. And let's live out this time on earth, whatever that time is, bringing the good news to a lost world. It is a lost world that does not know Him. And love them like He taught us to do. Altar rails are open for you. This week is for you. It's for me. It's for us. Let's live like it. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you now on bended knee. We ask that you expose us for who we really are. Expose our weaknesses. Expose what needs to be exposed that keeps us from you. Help each and every person listening today to repent, turn to you, change our ways, be on fire for you. Help us go and get excited about sharing this message with someone out in this broken world. We can't do it without you, but with you we're able we just got to open that door. So be with us this week, this holy week, as we remember your sacrifice on the cross for each and every one of us. We just give you praise, glory, and adoration in all things. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name, in the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Amen.